I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director at the Long Now Foundation. Um, it's great to have Tony here tonight. It turns out uh, Tony, Shea, and I went to high school together here in the Bay Area. Um, and uh, very strangely, the whole circle came back. I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about the interval space tonight. Um, the interval space uh, is our is is the name of the interval is the name of our new space in uh, Fort Mason, which is a renovation of the the space you might remember as our museum. Um, it will continue to be our museum, but it will also be a cafe by day, a bar by night, and an event space. Uh, I'm I'm sure that we're going to hear a fair amount from Tony tonight on engineered collisions, and uh, that's very much what this space is about: is engineering collisions between interesting people, and. Um, the, one of the unique aspects of the space is the way we're funding it, which is a crowdsourced model uh, that uh, has ranges from $10 to $25,000 levels. Um, but just this week, the bottle holders went in for the bottle level, which is $1,500. And uh, the amazing thing about that was that Lance uh, Winters over at St. George made a gin with the juniper berries that that we actually went and picked on our property in eastern Nevada. And my daughter and my wife and a bunch of Long Now uh, staff uh, spent a good four days out there just picking juniper berries one by one, brought those back to Lance, and he made uh, this amazing uh, gin that will only be available in these bottles. And when you, when you donate at this level, those bottles are kept in the ceiling of the space. They basically become the lighting fixtures uh, for the, the whole under mezzanine area. And so when you come in, your bottle comes down and we pour some for you. And uh, Lance has also made a gin project, or a uh, whiskey project, that uh, we're putting, he put 15 barrels of whiskey, of single malt in about a year ago. And then we're gonna, we're gonna pour one of those barrels out into bottles when we open. And so you can choose either the whiskey or the gin, and then over the 15 years, we'll open one barrel at a time. Uh, so you'll be, eventually you'll taste the whole, what's called the vertical of whiskey, uh, but in a very delayed way. And the, the last thing that you can get in, uh, in your bottle, except it will be a, a tin, actually, is uh, a 1989 aged Pu'er tea. So if you're not a drinker, uh, Jesse from Samovar uh, Tea Lounge has chosen a pretty amazing uh, chunk of tea. And it's the last of, of that vintage that will ever exist. So it'll be the only way that you can, you can get that. So we're only about $75,000 away from our $500,000 goal. And uh, thanks to many of you in this room, I know. Um, and we're almost there, and we're going to be opening next month, about a month from today. And we're already starting to program the space of past speakers like Rachel Sussman uh, on the, the Oldest Living Things in the World. Her book that she's been working on for 12 years is finally coming out. Uh, Violet Blue, who many of you know from San Francisco, on privacy, things like that. So it's going to be an amazing space with amazing events, uh, and we can't wait to see you there. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and there's still some bottles left, so please do. Now's your chance. Good evening, I'm Stuart Brand. I recommend that hike up to the top of 
old Razorback Mountain. Uh, we were looking at it once upon a time as a possible place to uh, have the 10,000-year clock, but that sandstone, really crappy stone, it's not competent, doesn't hold itself up. Um, but the view is fabulous. And Black Rock City is the most temporary of cities, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're still doing it thousands of years from now. Um, the reason 10,000 years is the long now is time frame is that sort of the story of civilization so far, agriculture, towns, cities. They say that civilization is what happens in cities. So you have words like uh, civitas, civic, citizen. And we've had probably half a dozen talks by now about cities, and I'll bet we keep coming back to it decade after decade. Because this century is the first one that instead of civilization happening in cities here, there, and everywhere, the whole damn planet is now majority urban. So at last, civilization uh, has a global city. And anything that makes those cities run better is of great interest. Hence, Tony Shea. So I uh, wanted to actually do a quick survey first. How many of you have actually shopped from Zappos before? Thank you. Oh, very cool. Well, thank, thank you. Um, so normally when I do this survey the, the, uh, to a random audience, the ratio is actually about two to one women to men. And a lot of guys I ask say they haven't personally shopped from us, but uh, their wives or significant others have. And a lot of times it's actually on their behalf. And, uh, and I was giving a tour a few years ago to an executive from one of the major record labels. Uh, and, and for those of you who may not know, we're actually based out of Vegas. So next time you're in Vegas, we, uh, we offer tours to the public several times a day, Monday through Fridays. We'll pick you up from the airport in a Zappa shuttle, give you an airport, uh, give you a tour, and then, and then drop you off uh, at your hotel afterwards. And, um, and, and so this was a few years ago, and I asked him the exact same question. Had he shopped from Zappos before? And he said, no, he hadn't personally shopped from us, but he suspected his wife had, because these white boxes would show up on his doorstep. And then they'd disappear, and he had no idea what was going on. He <laughs> didn't know if she was buying, exchanging, returning. And every time he asked her, she would just flat out refuse to answer him and, and change the topic. So um, when, when you come on the tour, you'll see uh, at, at the time I was uh, sitting in the merchandising area and we went upstairs to our customer loyalty team, which is our name for our call center. And uh, you'll see when you come on the tour, there's the whiteboard uh, in one of the floors and we have different stats like number of phone calls we took yesterday, percent we answered in 20 seconds or less, uh, sales through the call center and so on. And as I'm going through, stepping through all the different stats for him, I turn around, and he's disappeared. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. So I <laughs> go back looking for him. And finally, I actually find him. Turns out he had gone halfway down one of our aisles, sat down next to one of our customer service reps, and forced her to pull up his wife's account. <laughs> And he discovered that she had spent over $62,000 in her lifetime. So hopefully we weren't instrumental to any divorce proceedings or anything like that. 
Um, so I'm actually going to, uh, my talk I'm going to break into two parts. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Zappos and then uh, talk a bit about Downtown Project and what we're doing in, in Downtown Vegas. But actually before getting in Zappos, I wanted to talk about what led me to Zappos. And the story actually begins with uh, pizza. This was during the col my college years, this was uh, uh, in the early 90s. And I was living in a dorm where there were, I don't know, three or 400 students there. And on the ground floor of that dorm, there was this area that was kind of a kitchen cooking area that was set aside. And basically, each year, a different set of student entrepreneurs would bid on the space for the right to operate it for a year. And one year, my roommate Sanjay and I won the bidding. And we decided to get into the pizza business, which hadn't really been done before in that space. So that meant we had to invest in pizza ovens. We had to hire uh, employees who are basically other students, uh, deal with suppliers. And occasionally, I was making the pizzas myself. And this guy named Alfred, who um, actually later on ended up becoming our uh, CFO, uh, Chief Financial Officer at, at Zappos, uh, he would stop, this is actually how we met. He would stop by every night and order a large pepperoni pizza from me, which wasn't actually that weird. I had heard about, actually, Alfred had this reputation for eating a lot. He had nicknames like human trash compactor, monster, and so on. Um, and so not that weird. He would stop by every night and order, order a large pepperoni pizza from me. But then sometimes a few hours later, he would stop by again and order another large pepperoni pizza. And I thought to myself, oh, maybe you know, he skipped breakfast, or had to pull an all-nighter, had a term paper due or something. Well, I found out several years later, Alfred was taking the pizzas upstairs and selling them off by the slice. <laughs> so that's why he became our CFO at, at Zappos. <laughs> So, so that was the pizza business uh, and that I was running with my roommate Sanjay. Afterwards, Sanjay and I got together and formed a company called Link Exchange. Uh, this was during the early dot-com days back in 1996. We specialized in online advertising, uh, grew that company to about 100 or so people, and then ended up selling the company to Microsoft two and a half years later. But what a lot of people don't know is the real reason why we ended up selling the company. And the real reason was because the company culture just went completely downhill, and it just wasn't a fun place to work at anymore. Uh, I, I remember when it was just five or 10 of us, it was actually a lot of fun. We, we were kind of your typical dot-com startup back in the day. We were working around the clock, sleeping under our desks, had no idea what day of the week it was. But it was really, really exciting as we started growing. And as we started growing, we started hiring friends and friends of friends. and. I remember uh, there was this one friend of mine that, that was actually a, a friend from high school, that was a friend of both Xander and mine. He, he actually uh, was on this cross-country trip from New York and stopped by, I was living in San Mateo at the time, and uh, we needed a little extra help for the weekend, and then it became one week and then two weeks, and he actually never made his way back home and ended up joining the company full-time. So this whole strategy of hiring friends and friends of friends actually worked really well for us until we got to about 20 people, and then we ran into a major problem. And the problem was we basically ran out of friends. So <laughs> then we had to figure out how to hire people based on you know, resumes and interviews, and we were fresh out of college, had never done that before. 
And I think, you know, through trial and error, did a decent job in terms of hiring people with the right skill sets and experiences, but we didn't know any better to pay attention to company culture, and not everyone we hired was good for our culture. And by the time we got to 100 people, I myself dreaded getting out of bed in the morning to go to my own company, which was definitely a weird feeling. And uh, I, I was thinking, like, if I felt that way, wondered how all the other uh, early employees felt. Uh, so we, that's actually why we decided to sell the company. Uh, and, um, and then within a few months, I left, uh, Sanjay left. In fact, most of the early employees all left within a few months. Um, as it turned out, this was during, you know, this was 1998, 1999, during that first internet.com boom. So it worked out well financially. And so I was thinking about, okay, what do I want to do with my life now? And I decided to get together with Alfred, and we formed an investment fund and invested in about, I don't know, 20 or so different internet companies, of which Zappos just happened to be one of them. But then over the course of a year, I realized that for me, uh, investing was actually kind of boring. I, I felt like I was sitting on the sidelines all the time. And I really missed being a part of building something. So over the course of a year, ended up joining Zappos full-time and uh, been with Zappos ever since. Uh, it's been almost 15 years now. Uh, some people may have heard that it was actually oh, just over four years now that Amazon acquired Zappos, but it's actually very different from most of their other acquisitions uh, in that they've allowed us to just kind of as a precondition, we said we would only do it if we could stay independent, if we could have our own separate brand, our own separate culture. And so uh, happy to report four and a half almost years later, that they've uh, remained true to their word and, uh, and we continue to function separately from Amazon. So most people, when they think Zappos, think shoes, because uh, that's how we started. But internally, we actually have a saying that we're a service company that just happens to sell shoes. And our hope is that 10 years from now, people won't even realize we started out selling shoes online. And in fact, today we sell uh, handbags and clothing. And uh, we've talked about one day there could be a Zappos Airlines or a Zappos Hotel that's just about delivering the very best customer service and customer experience, because that's what we want to build our brand around. And uh, it, we grew from no sales in 99. Uh, and our whole philosophy is actually to take most of the money we would have normally spent on paid advertising or paid marketing and rather invest in that, invest into customer service and the customer experience, and then let our customers do the marketing for us through word of mouth. So it grew uh, over the years using that strategy to a uh, billion dollars in gross merchandise sales in 2008. We're doing now actually about triple that, and the number one driver of all that growth has been through repeat customers and word of mouth. So for all of this effort on building our brand to be about the very best customer service and customer experience, the number one priority of the company is actually not customer service. Our number one priority is company culture. And our whole belief is that if we get the culture right, then most of the other stuff like delivering great customer service or building a long-term enduring brand or business will just be a, a byproduct of that. And so this is, uh, we have something internally we refer to as the three C's in terms of how we think of the Zappos brand and how companies, uh, or how customers first interact with, with the company. So customers that have never heard of Zappos, we want them to know uh, we've got a great selection of clothing and footwear and other product categories. And once they know about that, then we want them to know we're all about delivering the very best customer service and customer experience. And that's more something they experience and not something that uh, we, we tell them. And once they know about that, 
Then we want them to know about our company culture and our core values because that's really the platform that makes everything possible. So whether it's the happiness that customers feel from getting that perfect outfit or perfect pair of shoes, or the happiness that customers feel from experiencing great customer service, or the happiness that employees feel from being part of a culture where the values of the company match their own personal values, the thing we realized that ties these three Cs together is that Zappos is really just about delivering happiness, whether it's to customers or employees, and we try to apply that same philosophy to our vendor partners as well, and hence the uh, title of my book that uh, came out several years ago. And so uh, for those of you who have not read uh, my book, I'll give you a really quick Cliff Notes summary. And the Cliff Notes summary is basically read these two books. And <laughs> I actually wish these books existed. Uh, we're almost 15 years, ago, years old now. And I wish these books existed when Zappos was founded. Uh, because it would have saved us a lot of trial and error. And I uh, highly recommend these books if you, if, for anyone in the audience that's uh, in a startup or, or involved in uh, business. Because, and we even teach classes on these books, actually, to our own employees. And, and the reason why I think these books are really important is because the authors researched and looked at what separated the great companies in terms of long-term financial performance from just the good ones or, or mediocre ones. And, and they were actually kind of surprised by their findings. They found that the great companies had two important ingredients that the good ones or mediocre ones did not have. And the first ingredient was that the great companies all had strong cultures. And for us at Zappos, we actually formalized the definition of our culture into uh, 10 core values. And, uh, and we actually have interview questions for each and every one of these uh, core values. And, and so our HR department does a separate set of interviews just for culture fit. And every employee that we hire actually has to pass that culture fit and core values test. Um, one of the, the realizations, and we actually didn't do this. Zappos was founded in 1999. It wasn't until five or six years into the company that we actually made a culture. Uh, I mean, it had always been important because I definitely did not want to repeat the same mistake I had made pre previously with Link Exchange. But we actually decided to make it a business strategy uh, when we realized part of it was from the research and part of it was the realization that a company's culture and a company's brand are really just two sides of the same coin. The, the brand is just a lagging indicator of the culture. And with social media and everyone's being hyper-connected, that brand is actually becoming less and less and less. And so uh, if you take the airline industry, as, for example, as a whole, if you ask a random person off the street, what do you think of the airline industry, you'll probably get back responses about bad customer service or apathetic employees and so on. And like it or not, that is the brand of the industry, even though no airline obviously set out for, for that to, to be their brand. And, um, and so uh, one of the things, uh, when, when you come for tour, like w one of our core values is create fun and little weirdness and uh, having a team and family atmosphere and so on. And so when people come, they, they may see a random, uh, some, every once in a while, a bunch of 10 employees will just say, hey, let's uh, dress up in lederhosen and it's uh, Oktoberfest and walk around in a parade and, and people see that and, and during the tour and they say, okay, I get it, happy for you Zappos, you, like you made the Fortune Best Companies to Work For list uh, several years in a row, but the stuff you're talking about would never work at my company. And what I found actually really interesting about the research from, from those books was that they found that it actually doesn't matter what your values are. 
What matters is that you have them and you align the entire organization behind those values. And, and that's actually where the power comes from. So we're not out here saying, oh, other companies should adopt the Zappos values, because in most cases, that probably would not be the right decision. All we are saying is that you should actually have values that you're actually willing to hire for and fire for and have performance uh, reviews based on that are completely independent of people's actual job performance. And when you're trying to come up with something where you ask yourself, what are you actually willing to hire and fire for that has nothing to do with job performance? It's actually a really hard list to come up with. And, and that's why it took us five years and then we spent another year actually just kind of debating the, the different potential values. Um, so going back to uh, these, the, these, the research done by these books, uh, the authors found that there were two important ingredients that over the long term, they found that separated the great companies in terms of long-term financial performance from just the good ones or mediocre ones. So the first one was they all had strong cultures. The second ingredient I actually found really counterintuitive. The second ingredient they found was that the great companies all had a vision that had a higher purpose beyond just money or profits or being number one in the market. And, and the irony of all that is by actually having a higher purpose, that enabled all these companies to generate significantly more profits than their peer group. And uh, so sometimes uh, at an entrepreneur conference, I, I might get approached by someone that asks me, oh, what's a great uh, market to get into where I can make a lot of money? And my advice to the, is generally, instead of having money be your primary motivator, think about what would you be so passionate about doing that you'd be happy doing it for 10 years, even if you didn't make any money from it, and that's what you should be doing. And the ironic thing is, if you actually do that, that'll greatly increase your uh, chances of making more money. So I like to say, chase the vision, not the money, and, and the money uh, will follow. Uh, there's a movie that came out, I think, uh, I don't know, I want to say six or seven years ago, uh, called Notorious. Did anyone in this room happen to see this movie? Okay, a few hands. Norm normally only one or two people raise their hands. Um, and at the time, I thought I was the only person that saw this movie because it, I think it only lasted a week. Um, but in this very important movie, <laughs> Sean Combs, also known as Puff Daddy, says to rapper Biggie Smalls, also known as Notorious B.I.G., don't chase the paper, chase the dream. I just wanted to have an excuse to use this photo in a business presentation, so... So if you're an entrepreneur, you know, think about what would you be so passionate about doing that you'd be happy doing it for 10 years, even if you didn't make any money from it. And if you have employees that report to you, think about what's the larger vision and greater purpose in their work beyond just money or profits or being number one in the market or uh, beating the competition. You know, there's a lot of, you know, HR consultants and books and, 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 and coaching that talks about how to motivate employees. And they work up to a certain extent. You can motivate employees through, uh, a lot of corporate America does it through fear. You can do it through recognition. Uh, you can do it through incentives. Like if you do X, then I'll give you Y. But what we kind of uh, stumbled into over the years and, and discovered at Zappos is that there's a huge, huge difference between motivation and inspiration. 
And if you can inspire your employees through a vision that has a higher purpose, beyond just money or profits or being number one in the market, and if you can inspire employees by having values, and not just you know, these stated values that are on a plaque on a lobby wall, but actually practice values that you're willing to hire and fire for, then you can actually accomplish so much more, and you don't really need to worry about the motivation part of it. It, it just kind of takes care of itself. So this is kind of the timeline of how we slowly evolved over the years, went from being about having the best selection of shoes to uh, being uh, about customer service and company culture, and then ultimately uh, in 2009 decided to simplify it all and have our brand be about delivering happiness. And so one of my favorite quotes, and, and I can't remember, I, I think it's from an executive from one of the major uh, ad agencies or something, is that a great brand is a story that never stops unfolding. And that's something that uh, I actually think about a lot of today in, in terms of what we're doing at Zappos and Downtown Project, and, and just in general, actually, with, with any, any company. Uh, and you know, we kind of slowly, we, we didn't plan on doing it, but over the years, we went from shoes to clothing to customer service to company culture in terms of the evolution of the Zappos brand. And when the book came out, people asked me, okay, delivering happiness, I get it but what's next? And actually, for the longest time, we didn't have a great answer for, for the people that were asking. So um, this is what our headquarters actually looked like uh, a year ago. We were based out of Henderson. And so Zappos originally, uh, just to backtrack a little, originally we started out in the Bay Area and then moved to Vegas uh, about 10 years ago when we decided we wanted to build our brand to be about the very best customer service and, and customer experience. And, uh, and up until about six months ago, we were actually in a suburb of Vegas called Henderson, and this is uh, one of the buildings there. Uh, we're at about 1,500 employees now, and as we grew, uh, we started occupying multiple buildings, and we were in three different buildings, and that actually had a very real impact on our company culture, because the people that were in the building at the top of the hill never saw the people at the, at the building that I was in, and, and so on. And we've actually been looking for at least the past seven or eight years for a place to build our own permanent campus where we could house everyone under one roof and have enough land to expand upon. And it was surprisingly hard to find in any of the Vegas area. And then we found out uh, two or three years ago that actually the former city hall, or at the time it was the city hall, was becoming available. The city had built a new, was in the process of building a new city hall and about to move out and it actually fit all our requirements. And so uh, this is what uh, the former city hall looks like, is actually now our uh, permanent headquarters. We've been there for about six months now. And, uh, and, and so super excited. And, um, and actually, this is a picture from our ribbon cutting back in the fall. We actually set a new world record. We had the most number of people simultaneously cutting a ribbon. It was over... <laughs> It was over a mile long, and we had 1,500 people cut the ribbon at the same time. And then afterwards, someone decided it would be a good idea to have a happy hour with 1,500 pairs of scissors running around. <laughs> um, but it worked out. And, uh, and so uh, I'm going to backtrack a, a couple years before the ribbon cutting. When we found out the space was becoming available, uh, I emailed our employees and asked them, what do you want in 
our dream campus and uh, got back all sorts of suggestions, literally hundreds of, of different suggestions. And uh, I, myself and a few other people went and toured a number of different corporate headquarters, including Apple and Nike and Google. And I remember at the uh, Nike headquarters that there's one building where there was a running track uh, around it. And then there was another building that had an on-site pub, and we thought to ourselves, we need one of those. And so uh, and th th that was actually one of the suggestions that many employees uh, emailed us. We, they wanted an on-site pub, an on-site gym, and so on. But the number one request we got from Zappos employees was actually doggy daycare. <laughs> More than human daycare, but... <laughs> So as we started getting all these suggestions, uh, we, we realized a couple things. One was that it was just going to be physically impossible to fit everything under one roof. But the second thing we realized was that all those different, all those other campuses we just mentioned, Apple, Nike, Google, were great for employees, but were actually kind of insular and didn't really integrate or, uh, or contribute to the community around them. And so we thought to ourselves, what if what if we actually decided to turn the entire concept inside out? And what if instead of just focusing on ourselves, we actually took an approach that was more analogous to NYU, where the campus kind of blends in with the city, and you don't really know where one begins or the other ends. And what if we actually encourage our employees to go out into the community, and we encourage people in the community to actually come onto our campus? And, uh, and so we actually decided to go that route instead. And complete, by complete coincidence, and this was about three or four years ago, a bunch of Zappos employees, and myself actually included, and this was three or four years ago, but I've been in the Vegas area for almost 10 years now, a bunch of us discovered this area of downtown Vegas that most tourists and even a lot of locals don't know about, called Fremont East. Most people, when they think Vegas, they think the big casinos on the Strip, which as it turns out, is not those casinos are not even technically within the city limits of Las Vegas. Or um, if it, people know anything about downtown Vegas, it's usually the overhead light show, the old casinos, and so on. Whereas if you just go a few blocks over to Fremont East, uh, you'd actually have no idea you're in Vegas. There's no gaming. And if you go into any of the bars or coffee shops there, uh, it's, it's, it's almost like the complete opposite of the Strip. And I grew up in the Bay Area, and it's actually, very surprisingly, the most community-focused place I've ever lived. I've actually never lived in a place where the bar owners and restaurant owners and coffee shop owners, they, they all go to each other's places just to, just to support each other and support the community. And so it was just this magical coincidence that this Fremont East area just happened to be a few blocks away from the former city hall, our, our, our future headquarters. And it was just one of those things that just seemed too good to be, to be true. And so for Zappos, we kind of had the answer in terms of where we wanted our brand to go to next. We had the original three C's of clothing, customer service, and company culture. And we decided to add a fourth C, and that fourth C being community. 
And so now, whenever we do different things, we try to think about how do we actually incorporate all four of these Cs in everything that we do. So, um, so for example, we had a skating, skateboarding event where we built a skate ramp out in the community, and it was open to the community. Uh, and, but employees came and, and bonded, and so that helped build the company culture. And we had these professional skateboarders that were doing tricks and so on, and we live-streamed that to our customers that were interested in skate shoes. And through that process, we could weave in the story of our culture and what was happening in downtown Vegas and, and the community. And so uh, I, I, this is the direction that, as a brand and as a company, we're going to be going for at least the next several years in terms of really thinking about how do we incorporate uh, now our fourth C into everything that we do and for all of our touch points, whether it's to customers or employees or our vendor partners as well. So that's the Zappos side of things. And now I'm going to switch gears a little and talk about downtown project. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, as Zappos, we, we sold to Amazon about a little over four years ago. And from that, uh, myself and Fred, who actually, he and I joined Zappos about the same time, uh, we were able to privately fund a separate company just between ourselves and, and a couple other friends, and that company is Downtown Project. And it's meant to complement a lot of the stuff that we're doing at Zappos in terms of community building. And so, uh, just to give a quick overview, we, Downtown Project has about a $350 million budget and you can see roughly how it's divided up. And there's a few different goals. One is to, ha one is to have everything you need to live, work, play uh, within walking distance. And for those of you who may have been to Vegas or, or live there, it's, it's a very car-based town, and, and most people there are not used to walking. Another is to help make it the most community-focused large city in the world, and probably the place people least expect it. And the third is to make it the co-learning and co-working capital of the world, uh, and you know, co-working started, I think, maybe close to 10 years ago here in San Francisco, where different startups of all sizes would work in the same physical space. And what they learned through that process was that actually a lot of unexpected collaboration and innovation would happen because people would overhear each other's conversations and, and so on. And now there are literally thousands and thousands of co-working spaces all around the world, and not just in tech, but also in culinary and fashion and uh, pretty much anything you can build a community around, photography and, and so on. And so that's one of our goals for, for, uh, for downtown Vegas. And uh, one of the things we've learned over the downtown project has been around for a little over two years now. And one of the things that we learned was that different people have different definitions of the word community. Uh, I come from the tech world where if you're talking about the tech community, that means certain things. Or if you launch a new website, you can talk about, oh, there's a community around that newly launched website. Uh, and so we wanted to be very specific about our goals in terms of uh, just because we found that people that lived in the neighborhood actually had a different interpretation of the word community than, say, people from the tech world. So specifically, uh, when we're trying to build community, we, we actually have our own separate three C's at Downtown Project, uh, collisions, co-learning, and connectedness. And uh, I'll explain those a little bit. Collisions is actually about getting people to have serendipitous interactions with each other, to collide with each other when they're in a public or semi-public place, like a sidewalk or a restaurant or a cafe or a bar and so on. Uh, Co-learning is about having the community 
help teach itself to different small businesses and, and startups and, and just anyone living there. And then connectedness is about the number and depth of relationships within a neighborhood. And then combine those three Cs with density and diversity and take these five things. And these are the things that we're trying to optimize and, and maximize for uh, in a certain area for a downtown project. And so the big bet is by focusing on these three Cs, collisions, co-learning, and connectedness, not only is that going to lead to a happier and luckier community, but actually innovation and productivity increases. And so what makes us different from a lot of uh, different, uh, most maybe real estate de developers that have this uh, short-term or medium-term ROI needs or cash flow needs is that rather than trying to maximize the short-term ROI, we're really focused on maximizing the long-term ROC, return on community and return on collisions. And then there's also this other term that we're really uh, focus on uh, maximizing that I stole from actually Jim Collins' latest book, Great by Choice, ROL, Return on Luck, uh, and uh, Accelerating Serendipity, which actually sounds like a really weird thing to manage. Like, how do you, how do you manage luck? But we actually have metrics, uh, very real metrics that we have that I'll share with, uh, with you guys later in a few slides. So, um, Quick breakdown, uh, we have 50 million that we've set aside for small businesses to help build a sense of neighborhood and community, uh, to m make it a walkable neighborhood. And so we, there's the Zappos tour uh, next time that you guys come in town, encourage you to come, but there's also separately a downtown project tour which actually goes through my apartment. And so this is actually my uh, apartment wall. And we're, unlike a lot of other developers, we're actually very anti top-down master programming. We, we want this to be organic uh, and, and, and driven by the community. And so basically when people go through, we just ask them, what do you want in your dream neighborhood? And uh, if it's not already on the wall, then we encourage people to write it down on a post-it note and add it to the wall. But the other cool thing is every once in a while, we get someone whose lifelong dream is to say, retire 10 years from now and start a cupcake bakery. And we say, well, don't wait 10 years. Why don't you start now? We'll invest in you. You can start living your dream, and it'll help uh, build out the neighborhood and, and community. So we have a few different criteria. Uh, we want them to be owner-operated uh, and, and something they're super passionate about. Uh, unique first or best is really important to us. A lot of people come to us and say, oh, I've seen this restaurant chain in seven other cities, and you should do one here too. And, and we say no to those because we want our own unique identity. Uh, the helping promote community and, and collisions is really important to us. Uh, we want the, whether it's uh, whatever business it, it is, we want them to care more than just about themselves or, or their business, but also want to help out the other small businesses uh, in the neighborhood. So this is Natalie, and I uh, serendipitously met her about two years ago in the local coffee shop. And, and it turns out she had, uh, was a chef at one of the local casinos for about 10 years and had just quit her job and was packing up her bags to move back to Santa Fe. And as we started talking, I, realized, I learned that her lifelong dream was to open up her own breakfast and lunch place. So she actually ended up being one of the first small businesses that we invested in. And uh, you can see her uh, place under construction. And, um, oh, by the way, I, I'm not a PowerPoint person at all, but I'm very proud of this transition, so we're going <laughs> to 
go look at it. See how it just, thank you. So you can see her place under construction and, uh, and she opened actually one year and four months ago. And the reason why I know it's exactly one year and four months ago is because one year and, and, uh, one year and three months into it, so a month ago, she actually handed us the final check to pay back the entire original investment. And, uh, yeah, it's, and so, and so uh, she's been doing, I think, triple her initial projections. It's become this new daytime community hub where if, if you're from the neighborhood and you eat breakfast or lunch there for an hour, chances are you'll run into five or 10 people you know. And now she's ready to either open up her next restaurant or help mentor the next generation of uh, first time uh, restaurant owners. Uh, this is a check cashing place two years ago. And this is Sarah, whose lifelong dream was to open up her own boutique clothing store. And, uh, and, she, and, and so this opened up almost a, two years ago. And she describes it as a hangout place that happens to sell clothing. And so people will, in the neighborhood will go in there several times a day just to hang out or co-work out of there and, uh, and, and so on. We actually, uh, end of November, so about uh, four or five months ago, opened up what I think uh, might be the world's largest shipping container park. Uh, and, and so it uses repurposed shipping containers and these modular cube structures. And, uh, and actually, you can see out there in front there, that's actually a 40-foot praying mantis from Burning Man that shoots out 20-foot flames. And um, daytime and nighttime activation. And, and, and so we were going for a certain vibe here. We wanted actually the vibe, the vibe of a uh, backyard uh, barbecue pool party where kids are having fun with kids and adults uh, are hanging out with other adults, drinking their, enjoying their wine and cheese, and there's live music, several ba li local bands play every day, and that's a 40-foot uh, slide for, for kids to go down. But it's also uh, a, a small business incubator. There's about 40 uh, containers there where someone that's never run a small business before can, on a very short-term lease, try out a, a concept. And if they do well, then our small business team may decide to invest in them for a more uh, permanent space and, and location. So uh, this is an example of, a, of someone that uh, had never run a small business before and, and is just experimenting and, and getting started. Uh, this guy, his name is actually Ernie. And uh, he was a Zappos employee several years ago and actually quit Zappos and because he wanted to pursue his passion for barbecue. And he um, was going to farmer's markets and selling the meat he was barbecuing and barbecue sauce and so on. And we decided to invest in him as a small business. And a year ago, he was literally on the sidewalk uh, about a block away for, from where this container park is now, uh, maybe taking in top-line revenue of $100 a day. And I happened to be walking by during this whole construction uh, phase of the container park last summer, and uh, he, he had the happiest look on his face, because that, that, that's literally his restaurant being lowered down uh, behind him. And, and now he went from uh, doing top line of $100 a day to I think now he's doing something like $140,000 a month, has 14 employees. And so it's, uh, it's just really cool seeing people that follow their passion and then being able to, uh, to, to also help out the neighborhood and, and community in, in, in the meantime. Uh, we opened up a, uh, a medical center that's actually 
a subscription model, so kind of like a gym membership, pay I think $75 or $80 a month, and where it's actually focused on primary and preventative care. There's health coaches that will check in with you daily if that's what's needed uh, to make sure that you're, you're staying healthy and kind of taking on a new model for, for healthcare. Uh, we have 50 million that's set aside for tech startups, and in the past year, we've actually relocated about 60 tech companies from other states or, or actually even countries to, um, to downtown Vegas. And, and there was actually one uh, tech company in, based out of China, I, I think it was about 20 people. They had just won the TechCrunch uh, Disrupt Beijing uh, Award and, uh, and actually were on their way to Silicon Valley and then happened to stop by in Vegas and, and then actually decided to make that home instead. And, we, and then we asked uh, these different tech startups like, why choose downtown Vegas out of all the other different options around the world or around the country? And, uh, and they say it's, it's actually for two reasons. One is really this whole sense of community, because uh, whether it's on the small business side or the tech side, uh, we, in addition to it being a good investment, we only invest in companies that actually want to actively contribute to the local community. So everyone ends up actually just helping each other out. Um, and, and this is another company, uh, Project 100, that uh, we placed the largest order in the U.S. for Teslas, ordered 100 Teslas. And then there's also 100 electric vehicles and, and shared bike program, and so the idea is to uh, make it really appealing for people to have these uh, different shared uh, transportation uh, options so that they can get rid of their car. Uh, there's different co-working spaces that have opened uh, in tech, uh, and, and this was a former casino a year ago, Old Smoky Casino, that now has by daytime turned into organically this uh, co-working lounge where a lot of tech people actually hang out in. And then by night, it's, uh, it's actually, uh, uh, there's different live bands playing and so on. Um, and so uh, part of the reason the companies move there is really the sense of community. And the other reason, they tell us, is really thinking about this whole idea of the city as a startup. And how many opportunities do you have in a lifetime to help shape the future of a major city? Uh, we opened up an early childhood center that's actually teaching kids entrepreneurship and creativity using the latest neuroscience research. And, uh, and then took over an arts and music festival that draws about 20 or 25,000 people and, uh, every, every first Friday and have actually partnered with the founders of Burning Man to bring different Burning Man elements to, to downtown Vegas, uh, including this piece where I, I learned that you can actually crawl up in there and put a DJ on top. Uh, and, and so the idea is every block or so we want to put some sort of large-scale art or fire element and essentially trick people that aren't used to walking to walk one more block and, and one more block and, and one more block. And, and there's the praying mantis at the uh, grand opening of the Mexican restaurant that, that we opened. So um, Life is Beautiful is this... Uh, uh, it's, it's almost like South by Southwest meets Coachella. We fenced off 15 city blocks uh, that has never actually been done before in any city. And it was actually four festivals in one. Uh, it, it was its own music festival. We had 65 bands, including uh, Killers, Imagine Dragons, Beck, Kings of Leon, and so on. Uh, we had 50 celebrity chefs. Uh, it, so it was its own culinary festival. 
we, it was its own arts festival. We had 16 murals go up. And, and the cool thing was after the festival was over, um, the, uh, most of the art stayed behind, so it helped beautify the city. And then it was its own learning and, and, and speaking festival, and it had a whole bunch of uh, different speakers. So um, I actually have a video here that, that I want to play for you guys. And this video was put together by um, one of our other small business investments, Downtown Films. And I really like this video because I've seen a lot of marketing videos for different events where the video makes it seem much nicer than the event actually was. Uh, and, and, and I actually thought this uh, video did a really good job of capturing exactly what the vibe was like for the uh, Life is Beautiful Festival. So I'll play that video for you guys. We are the music makers. And we are the dreamers of dreams.
so uh, we actually had, uh, well, that was, last year was the first year we threw that festival. We had 60,000 people come over two days. Uh, we're thinking of expanding it to three days uh, this year. And uh, it, it's the last weekend of October, so hopefully uh, some of you will be able to come. But uh, for most of the people that came, it was actually their first time visiting that part of downtown. And, and so it was cool seeing people walk into the local coffee shop and kind of look around and, and realize that it wasn't just a temporary setup for, for some festival. And then we heard back from a lot of the small businesses in the weeks after that their business was up because people came back and wanted to see what the whole area was like in, in, uh, in real life. So um, uh, this is actually another book I, I would recommend reading. Even if you aren't involved in anything re related to this, uh, revitalization of, of cities. It's uh, called Triumph of the City. It's written by a Harvard economics professor that studied cities from all different time periods, like Rome, New York, Detroit, and looked at why some thrived and some didn't. And a lot of the findings are actually kind of counterintuitive, but they're the ones that are guiding how we're approaching uh, th things with downtown project. And one of the most interesting findings that is cited is that every time the size of a city doubles, Innovation or productivity per resident increases by 15%. But when companies get bigger, the opposite happens. Innovation and productivity per employee generally goes down. And so at 1,500 employees now at Zappos, uh, part of our goal and, and part, of, part of the reason why we really want to figure out how do we become more community-focused and, and, uh, and how do we actually structure ourselves to really function more like a city and less like a corporation is to actually try to avoid that fate. And uh, there are three ingredients for that to happen. Uh, one, you need a residential density of 100 residents per acre. Uh, combined with street-level activity for those residents to collide, so all those uh, post-it notes that you guys saw earlier. And the third ingredient is, I think, the hardest, but also the cheapest, and the one that gives you the most leverage. And it's really this culture of openness, collaboration, and sharing. So if people, and I think of it as a multiplier, if people are twice as likely to talk to each other, then maybe you only need half the residential density. And it turns out that a lot of the stuff that we were, we've been doing over the past almost 15 years at Zappos, you know, from a company culture building perspective, in terms of getting employees to collide with each other as, as often as possible, actually apply at the city level, too, in getting people in the community to collide with each other. And so uh, both at Zappos and for Downtown Project, we actually prioritize collisions over convenience. And so here's an example. Uh, off to the left, uh, uh, off the screen, is the parking garage. And the city employees used to park there, go across the sky bridge, and then they'd wind up inside the building. Well, at Zappos, we actually decided to shut down that sky bridge, which forces employees out onto the sidewalks and more collision opportunities with each other as well as with the community. And so the big bet, and this is just a partial list now, is get all these different groups that, that are creative and entrepreneurial and have a bias to be helpful and, and collaborate and be friendly, get them together in a relatively small space together, and statistically, the magic will just kind of happen on its own. Uh, this is actually uh, called the Yagnan. It's the high-rise that I live in. And uh, we actually have 100 furnished apartment bedrooms in there that we've set up as free hotel rooms. And so 
uh, anytime anyone on our team, we, we meet someone interesting. Uh, and, and so anytime, any, I'm assuming you guys are all interesting. So anytime you guys come to Vegas, if we have room, I encourage you to come stay with us. And, uh, and what ends up happening is people, uh, they stay with us and are essentially tricked into going to the local coffee shop and the local bars and, and so on. And, and they discovered this whole new side of Vegas that didn't, they didn't even know existed. And, and, uh, and so every week now we're hosting actually about 100 people. And, uh, and, and from those 100 people, we pick 15 to 20 of them and ask them, hey, as long as you're in town, do you want to give a uh, short you know, TED-like talk about whatever you're working on, whatever you're passionate about to the community? And 95% of them say yes. So then now we end up having this ongoing free content for the community. And, uh, and so you know, there's great conferences like TED or uh, South By or, or Summit Series where there's two reasons to go or, or an event like this. Uh, one is for the different speakers that you might hear at a conference, but the other reason to go to a conference like TED is because no, no matter who you run into, they're doing something interesting to, to change the world. And so uh, what downtown Vegas is becoming is it's almost like we're throwing a mini TED conference in uh, every single week now. And so uh, we actually acquired uh, a building that's at probably the most prominent intersection of all of Las Vegas, Fremont Street and Las Vegas Boulevard. And rather than turn it into an easy moneymaker like a fast food place or a bar and so on, we actually decided to build a speaker's theater called Inspire Theater. And, uh, and it actually just opened, and it includes uh, the West Coast's uh, largest magazine selection, and there's different co-working spaces and collaboration spaces. And the idea for the theater part is imagine if, say, whether you're a visitor or, or you're a res resident there, Wednesday afternoon through Sunday afternoon, you can walk in and there's someone giving a TED-like talk about something interesting, and, and you can you can learn learn something just by walking down the street. And so we've actually started theming each of the different weeks. So first week of every every month is first Friday is that arts and music festival, so it's arts and music focused. Sec second week of every month is tech focused, so different tech entrepreneurs and investors come into town. Third week is fashion focused, and fourth week we call Catalyst Week. It's almost like a younger version of TED, uh, a lot of social entrepreneurs and and so on. And so when we first started this project a little over two years ago, uh, the initial thought was, okay, we have to invest a lot into high rises because, uh, or convince people to live in small spaces because that was the only way uh, that we could think of to mathematically get to that 100 residents per acre that, that we were targeting. And then started thinking about, okay, why do, why do we actually care about residents? Like, like if there's some random guy that does nothing but sit at home all day, uh, never leaves the house, like that doesn't actually add any value to the community. And we realized what we care about are residents that actually go out and about and are collisionable. They're in a semi-public place. And so started doing the math on, say, someone like me. Um, I'm out and about in a collisionable way, so it could be a sidewalk or cafe or or a bar, a restaurant, and so on, call it three or four hours a day, times seven days a week. Uh, I travel a lot, so call it 40 weeks a year. Multiply it out, it works out to about 1,000 collisional hours a year for a resident like me. Uh, this is a guy named Jake. He's actually based out in New York. I met him, uh, I think, a year and a half ago or so. And, uh, and he actually uh, had the most successful fashion-related Kickstarter campaign 
at, at the time I met him. And actually, he has since beat that. For those of you who may not know what Kickstarter is, basically you put up like this three-minute video and then ask people to donate anywhere from, uh, like I, I think it's usually around 5 to 20 or $30 for, for whatever project you're working on. Well, Jake raised over a million dollars on Kickstarter selling these hoodies that last for 10 years. And we said, well, we're trying to start this fashion scene in downtown Vegas, and you should move to downtown Vegas. And for various reasons, he couldn't. His significant other was in New York, and his factory was out in New York, and so on. But he knew about this Fashion Focus Week, third week of every month that, uh, that we do with different speakers. And so he actually agreed to come out once a month during that week and have office hours and mentor other entrepreneurs and give talks. And he's given several talks, including how to do a really good Kickstarter campaign. And, uh, and, and, and he uh, helps, hangs out in the fashion incubator called Stitch Factory that, uh, that we also invested in. And so we started doing the math on someone like Jake. What is the value of a purposeful visitor? And the cool thing is he comes on such a regular basis now, uh, I think a lot of people don't even know he doesn't live there just because he's, he's formed so many relationships and he can't walk uh, a block or two without someone stopping him. And, and so without living there, he's actually become part of the community. And doing the math, he's out in about 12 hours a day, times seven days a week, uh, 12 times a year, and it actually works out to about 1,000 collisional hours a year as well. And so while we still want people to move to downtown Vegas, we now have this whole additional layer that we can use to help accelerate the idea exchange and, and community building and so on. And, uh, and we came up with the name for it. It's called uh, Subscribe to, uh, to Downtown Vegas. So we basically went back to that original formula of 100 residents per acre and changed that 100 residents per acre to 100,000 collisional community hours per acre per year, which works out to 2.3 collisional hours per square foot per year, um, which just gives, you, uh, gives us a whole new lens to look at real estate. And so if we're investing in a restaurant that's 3,000 square feet, we can estimate how many customers and how long they'll stay there and so on, and then do the math on whether that's going to yield at least the number of collisional hours that uh, we're looking for to get out of our uh, real estate property. And so the big bet is by focusing on these three Cs, collisions, co-learning, and connectedness, what we want people to say about downtown Vegas, whether they're just visiting for the first time or subscribing or, or living there, is that downtown Vegas will make you smarter, which is probably the last thing a lot of people would associate with <laughs> downtown or, or Vegas. You know, so um, you know, I've been involved with uh, a few different companies, with Zappos uh, and Delivering Happiness, which was actually a separate company uh, based out of the Bay Area, actually, that was spun off from the book and has its own uh, separate CEO that focused on helping companies build their own strong cultures and, and figure out their values. And uh, in Downtown Project, there, there's kind of this um, theme of inspiration we try to weave through them. And uh, I don't know if a, a lot of people know this, but it, this actually just happened in the past few years where for the first time ever in human history, 50% of all humans now live in cities. And within our lifetime, that's actually going to jump to 75%. So we view what we're doing in downtown Vegas that's much more than just about downtown Vegas or, or even the Vegas area in general. Uh, you know, there's a lot of city revitalization projects that depend on having a Harvard or Stanford or expensive sports team or stadium. And not every community 
or city can afford to do those things. And so we chose those three Cs, collisions, co-learning, and connectedness, because we wanted something that could be replicated to other communities and cities. And for us, uh, we're inspired by the story of the four-minute mile, where, for those of you who may not know, for the longest time, people thought it was impossible to run a mile in under four minutes. Or they thought even if you did, you'd probably collapse and die as soon as you cross the finish line. And then, in 1954, this guy named Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. But what I found really interesting was that in less than a year, in less than a year, other people broke the four-minute mile. And it wasn't that nutrition was better on Earth that year. Uh, it was just people believed it was possible. And so, you know, if we can make downtown Vegas a, a place probably voted by many as least likely to succeed, if we can make downtown Vegas <laughs> a place of inspiration and creativity, entrepreneurship, uh, innovation, upward mobility, discovery, and, and all that good stuff, if we can do it in downtown Vegas, then hopefully that'll help inspire other communities and cities to reinvent themselves and we can serve as the four-minute mile for the world. And uh, anyone that's interested in a copy of this presentation, uh, or if you're ever visiting, come for a tour, just email me, tony at sapos.com. And um, I just want to end on actually one, that quote that I really liked and, uh, that I mentioned before, is a great brand is a story that never stops unfolding. And, and I encourage all of you to actually think about it for how that can apply uh, to your lives and, and, and your, your company or organization. Because I think the same is true for a company, same is true for a city, and same is true for a community. And uh, I mean, that's, that's why I'm so excited to be a resident of downtown Vegas right now, because I can't wait to see what unfolds next. Thank you very much. That was great. Uh, you see, <clears throat> there's another book you would love, uh, Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Cars, which is basically about the games that keep unfolding or the games that we really uh, hmm. want to push ahead on. Uh, Kevin Kelly and I guide our lives by this book, you, your kind of book. Um, one of the things we have in common between Long Now and, and Zappos is our friend Jeff Bezos, who, as near as I can tell, is doing a downtown Seattle version of uh, an Amazon campus, not out like Nike or Microsoft, but they're in town. Have you tracked on that at all and seen any relation between what you're doing and what they're doing? Uh, I just know about it from the headlines, but mm -hmm. I, 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 yeah, I've, I've visited once or twice, so it's hard to know. Um, Has Jeff visited your scene? Uh, he, I think, visited not while I was there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think he visited once when, actually, uh, he came, I think, a year or two after the acquisition and, and the day he visited, uh, all our phones went down. And so, um, <laughs> not great customer service, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Bad day at BlackRock. 
Um, question from Dylan Henry. What does the Las Vegas Planning Department think about the downtown project? Do you run into any official opposition to your efforts? Um, no, the city's been, uh, in general, has been really great and supportive. I, th I think a lot of stuff there, uh, at least a little mystified by, like, Burning Man praying mantises shooting out flames, and <laughs> and uh, it, they've never done uh, building codes based on shipping containers, and, and so there's, uh, I think, some education that we have to mm -hmm. do. But but in general, uh, we're not asking them for money, and and we specifically actually set up Downtown Project as a for-profit entity because we wanted hmm. to uh, we wanted it to not be based on grants or donations, uh, we wanted it to be able to be uh, replicated, mm -hmm. uh, and, and once the model's proven, then uh, you know, the fastest way to replicate it is through additional uh, investors and so on. And are you getting uptake in other cities? You, you were shooting uh, for replicability, so you're probably watching for where it takes, if anything. Yeah, it's so early. I mean, we're only two years into it, uh, yeah. and so it's we're, we're not even starting to... Uh, Think about what we might actually do, do with other cities, but it's still fun to kind of daydream. Um, uh, one of the ideas we had, so, so, so the Ogden is the building that I live in, and, and we have those visitors as well. And it's become this really neat mix of uh, essentially kind of curated visitors and, and residents that uh, care about downtown. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so these random uh, uh, conversations happen in the elevator, mm -hmm. uh, and, and and so one thought was, it'd be kind of... Slow elevators, I can see it. It'd, it'd be cool if, uh, actually, imagine, I don't call this 20 years in the future, where uh, maybe there's a new brand of this hotel or residence uh, chain that, uh, say, you open one up in, um, in, a, in another city, where the residents, uh, where, where basically the, the only way you can stay at that hotel is if you've already gone through uh, the downtown Vegas experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so through that experience, hmm. and so we usually host people uh, for each of the different weeks from Wednesday through Saturday, and people get to know the community. And uh, you know, I, I guess it it's, um, reminds me a little bit of Burning Man, because if, if you know, half the, probably more than half the people from Burning Man are from the Bay Area, mm -hmm. but they act differently there and, and treat each other uh, in a different way because of the cultural norms of the place and, and, and just the culture there. And so uh, if you're going to a hotel in some other city where you know you're within one degree of separation from all the other guests as well, hmm. then you kind of have to be nice to them. And then it literally becomes the friendliest <laughs> hotel chain in the world because you're able to uh, curate the guests as well as uh, you know, the, the employees. And then if you make part of that, the expectation that, oh, if you uh, uh, go to the one in this city, then part of the expectation of staying there is you want to somehow contribute to the local commu community there. And it could be giving a talk or having office hours and so on. Mm -hmm. and, then, uh, and then that becomes free ongoing content for, for that community. And then uh, I can see that kind of scaling and be, being like uh, a fun project later on. So Burning Man is high visibility in its own way, and the strip of Vegas is high visibility in another way. And it's also a nighttime show, to put it mildly. Is there any relationship at all emerging between the strip and what you're doing in the old downtown? 
not really, because the strip is really focused on tourists, mm -hmm. uh, and we get. I, I feel like we actually get the best of both worlds. Uh, Vegas, uh, or downtown Vegas, has this small town feel, but we have the infrastructure for 40 million visitors a year, and so the strip's great if it, it's everyone comes to Vegas, mm -hmm. uh, and there's uh, it's basically a nonstop flight to from from almost everywhere, uh, and so. Uh, People come to come to Vegas at some. Most people come to Vegas for uh, at some point for a convention or bachelor party or wedding or, or whatever. And so, uh, over time, I, I think uh, they want to see other things as well. And, and so, uh, so and, and a, a lot of them are actually very surprised by what they see in downtown Vegas. I bet. Well, it, you know, it occurred to me looking at the video of the Life is Beautiful is it looks like Burning Man without nudity and without irony. <laughs> and I, I sort of, you know, cities are always kind of interestedly, creatively doubting themselves and challenging themselves and, and being ironical about what's going on. And what we've seen here seems in a way wonderfully irony-free but maybe that's not the case. It's just what I'm seeing. Or, uh, or the irony is that it's happening in Vegas of all places. Oh, right? that's fair. So. <laughs> fair enough. So Vegas has got to stay wicked and ir irony deep in order for you guys to be the other part of uh, the story, it sounds like, which actually would be kind of great. That'd be sort of what you want in a city is Come into town, take your choice. A devil on one shoulder saying, go over here. And the angel on the other shoulder saying, hey, now go, go to downtown. Blend in. <laughs> I can see people on two buses. Anyway, um, Kevin Kelly has a pair of questions. What have you learned about the difference between managing employee culture, a company, versus citizen culture, a city? And do you think city development should be done by city government? or by private enterprise? Uh, it's very different. Uh, I, I mean, with, with Zappos, culture is uh, a lot easier to manage because we can hire people and, and fire people. You mm. can't really fire someone from a city. Uh, and so... So that's uh, a question that, that Jeffrey West, who gave a talk here on the, you know, those things that Ed Glazer points out about how cities seem to keep being able to as they get bigger and go faster and become more productive and companies go the opposite direction, that somehow the hire and fire or the kind of the craziness quotient that is not permitted in companies but is inevitable in cities somehow makes that difference. What's your read on that? Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's, with any company, there's the tendency to, uh, ultimately, you want to command and control and uh, most companies, uh, there's just this inherent need to grow and, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, be more, um, I, I guess, uh, as you grow, you try, most companies try to be less displaceable, like, I guess, mm -hmm. from, by, other, by competition and, and so on. Um, and whereas cities are, uh, I think the technical term is complex adaptive systems, and, mm -hmm. and so it's it's you know the mayor of a city can't actually tell its residents what to do and, and, and where to live, and, and so uh, and and so I think that's why cities are so resilient, and for the most part, cities don't die, but companies do, uh, 
Uh, I th you know, the lifespan of the average company is relatively short. The longest ones um, are like 400 years, longest cities are about 8,000 years. Yeah, and if you look at, you know, who was in the, whatever the equivalent of the S&P or what, mm -hmm. whatever was 50 years ago, you know, very few of those uh, are mm -hmm. in that same index today. So I get a sense you're, as your own company unfolds, you're treating your employees more like citizens over time. Is that accurate? Uh, well, so the shift we're actually trying to make is how do we treat them more like, uh, how do we get them to actually behave and think more like entrepreneurs mm -hmm. uh, versus executing stuff that managers are telling them to. And, and so uh, that's actually the shift that we're in, in the middle of doing this year and next year in, term, in terms of basically trying to get rid of traditional management uh, a structure and instead frame things in terms of uh, accountabilities and, and, and purpose and, and it's up to employees to figure out how to fulfill those accountabilities and, and so uh, for depending on what uh, they're called circles or sub-circles, uh, each circle has a purpose and, uh, and different accountabilities and, and then it's up to them uh, to, to really figure out how to en enact those and how to prioritize those. And so it's, uh, it's kind of a scary shift for people, uh, I mean, for a lot of managers, too, because mm -hmm. they're used to uh, having control over everything that's, that, that's under them. Um, but I think that uh, in, it also makes the organization a lot more able to adapt. Uh, and, and that's, I think, probably a lot of companies, that's, they end up building this structure that is optimized for what the initial conditions might have been. Mm -hmm. That's what enabled them to scale, but then the world changes or competition changes or the employees change, and then the structure no longer uh, is appropriate for, mm -hmm. uh, for today. And, and the challenge is that uh, the world is changing faster and faster. Mm -hmm. so. so has that new process been going long enough to get a sense of how it's working or not working? Uh, so right now at Zappos, I'd say probably about 15% of uh, employees are, uh, have kind of shifted into the system. And mm -hmm. uh, what we found is on average, it probably takes an individual maybe six months or so to kind of get the hang of mm -hmm. really thinking in a, in a different way. I, I mean, there's a lot of different, just completely different ways of, of, of thinking. And, and so one cultural change that uh, we need to do at Zappos. And, and it's hard because one of our core values is about creating a team and family uh, spirit and, and atmosphere. And so historically, we've been actually very consensus-based mm -hmm. uh, built or consensus-building culture. Uh, the problem with consensus is it doesn't scale. Mm -hmm. it, we're at 1,500 employees now. You, and if you had to go around and getting sign off of all of them then for everything, then that doesn't scale. And so uh, the, I guess, complex adaptive uh, system way of doing it is basically think of each employee as a human sensor that is capable of sensing different tensions uh, and tension is not necessarily uh, it's not meant to be a bad word it's mm -hmm. it's meant as something uh, and, and that's actually something that's now become a regular part of our vocabulary it's about uh, the difference between the way things are today and uh, what's possible to 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 be better and uh, and basically, every employee 
you know, the, v, the head of marketing will sense different tensions than the frontline employee that's answering phone calls, uh, but they're all uh, equally valid tensions, and uh, the system that we're using actually allows, uh, not just allows, but the way it will ultimately uh, succeed is if every employee actually, uh, instead of trying to build consensus, is selfishly processing their own tensions on an ongoing basis uh, in service of the greater purpose of the company. And if all 1,500 employees do that uh, for the purpose of their sub-circle and so on, and ultimately for the purpose of the company, then the system works. Uh, but it's a, it's a big mind shift to go from uh, consensus building to uh, selfish tension processing in service of a greater purpose. When you make a culture shift like that, uh, there must be a certain amount of churn of some employees saying, well, this isn't what I signed up for, I'm out of here, or they're fired because they don't actually meet that new frame of operation. What is the, and, and you say you hire and fire toward these uh, values and, and core values of the company. How much hiring and firing does that actually play out as? Um, so we didn't always have core values. It was five or six years into Zappos that we rolled out our core values. And I think with any change, there, there will be churn just mm -hmm. because not, uh, when we rolled out our core values, I'd say at the time, maybe we had five to 10% of employees that weren't fully on, on, on board with it. Um, you know, one, one of our core values is uh, create fun and a little weirdness is the actual phrase for it. And we think it's just a fun way of uh, saying uh, we encourage individuality and, and so on. But um, uh, our head of legal uh, <laughs> didn't like the fact that we were trying to hire or fire people based on uh, you know, something <laughs> called create fun and a little weirdness. Um, so he's no longer with the company. So, <laughs> it's clear that uh, this is really good for Las Vegas, being there in town and having this kind of integration and the collision ability and so on, is going from suburban Zappos to increasingly urban Zappos. How's that working out for the company? Uh, I'd say similar type of change. So we had some employees that had never been in an urban environment before, uh, you know, maybe had never seen a homeless person before. Uh, and, and so I, I think there was, prior to the move, because uh, we announced it, uh, I think two or three years before the actual move happened, so mm. there was a lot of things. And, and at the time, Downtown Project hadn't really started yet either, and, and so downtown was a lot more dangerous than, uh, than, it, than it is today. And even six months ago, it would have been hard to find kids and family around in the downtown area. And now at Container Park, uh, like on a Saturday, sometimes there's 13,000 uh, people visiting in a single day and mostly kids and families. So mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think part of it was the anticipation of it was, was hard for people. And so there are some people that left the company because they really wanted to only stay in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you know, there's also just with any company, there's natural attrition and then there's natural self-selection of people that love living in an urban environment. You, you remind me a little of Jimmy Wales, uh, who gave one of these talks a while back, saying that he was sort of the uh, 
both the emperor and just a person who kind of designed the community. And the community made, not the software, the community made Wikipedia where it is. Um, you know, listening to you be uh, radically inventive time after time with your company and with what it does makes me wonder if you even have a board uh, <laughs> saying, you know, okay, this is, you've gone too far this time, Tony. Back off a little bit. Uh, it, it, it strikes me that this level of organizational inventiveness somewhat requires the kind of individual leadership that you're embodying. What's your perception of that from being inside it? Uh, in terms of how Amazon feels? Or? Well, I mean, <laughs> you have notions. And you read a book and they say, well, screw it. Let's just you know, swerve the whole company based on this book I just read. Most companies don't get to do that. But you do, and, it, and you and the company have been rewarded for that. So what does that say about leadership in companies? Um, well, I guess... Uh you know, we're, we're super lucky to have uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon as, as uh, I guess, our, uh, our equivalent of a board of directors oh, uh, in, in that uh, they're long-term thinkers. And, and so hmm. uh, they, they do things that are right for the long term. Uh, I, I remember when we first got acquired, um, uh, I guess, a little over four years ago, uh, historically, we, we had this thing called uh, store credit at, at Zappos where uh, if someone returned a pair of shoes, uh, it would actually take us uh, about 10 days before we would refund the, the uh, customer's uh -huh. credit card. And that was just something that uh, was born out of necessity because we had limited funding and, and, uh, and, and so we looked at all different methods to actually try to improve our cash flow, including mm. uh, building relationships with vendors. And um, it, it, we used to have to pay immediately, and then 30 mm. days, and then there were some vendors that allow us uh, now to pay 120 days later, just mm. based on the re relationships. Huge, yeah. And they know it's a win-win. Right. Uh, but then, uh, similarly, on, on the customer's side, uh, we knew that if we took a little bit longer to refund customers, and this was back at pre-Amazon acquisition, that would actually allow us to buy more inventory, which would ultimately, in the long run, result in a better customer experience. Uh, and, and so one of the things, it was one of those things that we kind of had to do just from just to not go out of business uh, in, in the early days. Uh, and I remember after the acquisition, uh, we had our first... Uh, quote-unquote board meeting with with Amazon and uh, and and we're talking about well there's this kind of store credit thing that we've been doing for a while and it's taken 10 days and we really think we should you know cut it back down but it's gonna have a very real uh, short-term impact of several million dollars uh, in cash flow uh, but we think it's better and, and I had prepared this whole long you know here are all the reasons why we should do it and uh, and basically, as soon as uh, they heard better for the customer, they're like, all right, done, next. Right. And what I was prepared for, That's this 10-minute justification, it took yeah. 10 seconds. So. That's great. Well, a while back, we had a speaker here talking about cities. Uh, the title was, uh, What If Mayors Ruled the World? And his point was that uh, cities are sort of the most responsive and effective level of government in the world these days. They're responding more to climate change and all that kind of thing because they have mayors. 
And mayors aren't particularly Republicans or Democrats, all of that. They're dealing with a pothole level of civilization. And that keeps them honest and it keeps the citizens feeling engaged because there's a, a scale issue that makes sense to them. And I think that's one of the things that makes companies continue to be in nonprofits that are well-led, a continually important thing in the world. Uh, but this, the, I, I'm focusing on this point of, I think, that leadership uh, and a certain amount of uh, good judgment and uh, ongoing creativity, an interest in the unfolding story and the leader uh, is a big part of what you're talking about here. Do you think that's true? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think that's a good, uh, uh, that's probably a good myth or, or something people feel like they want or like, like people need to think, oh, there's a single person when, uh, you know, most, the vast, vast majority of stuff that happens, whether it's at Zappos or Downtown Project or whatever is like, are not my ideas. Um, and so... But you get, uh, you get out of the way of the people who are having those kind of ideas. You help defend them from a bureaucracy that will stifle them. I, I guess... Somebody has to do that. I, I guess I come... I come from a, a slightly different perspective, I guess, because, like, hmm. I, I was not interested in urban planning or, uh, or anything three or four years ago, and mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't interested in sh shoes 15, actually I'm still not interested in shoes, but, um, <laughs> but you know, 15, 15 years ago, but I am, I'm interested in customer service and culture, and then, but yeah, not shoes. Um, but 15, 15 years ago, uh, I used to throw a lot of parties and uh, I enjoyed thinking about things like if there's multiple bars at a party. Uh, one, one of my pet peeves is that if you go to a party with multiple bars, everyone crowds around the first bar and it creates this traffic uh, or point of congestion and so on. And, uh, and so if I was throwing a party with multiple bars, I would purposely actually shut down the first bar uh, for the first hour or two and people will always find the alcohol. And so <laughs> they'll go to the second bar and then after, and then an hour or two later, open up the first bar and that promotes circulation and, and so on. And then, um, and so similarly at Zappos, when thinking about how to get employees to collide with each other, we do things like um, lock all the doors except for the front door, even though it's more inconvenient and employees can't go in from the parking lot to the back door, but mm -hmm. have to go all the way around. But promotes uh, more, or I gave the Skybridge example too. And, and, and I guess, uh, you know, on the city level, we, we own some uh, office buildings and some of which have parking and then we own parking lots. And, and so we, for new tenants, we actually uh, say that part of their lease deal is that they're not allowed to park in the building. They have to park like a block or two away, which, uh, you know, initially is probably uh, kind of annoying. and. But it promotes more collisions, and so going back to prioritizing collisions over uh, convenience, it, and uh, you know, part of the reason why uh, that's so important on, on the city level is because research has shown most innovation comes from something outside your industry being applied to your own, and so we right. need people from different industries colliding together. But for me, it's never been about, oh, here's a new model for urban planning. It's 
I just, I mean, I started out throwing parties, so I just think of it as just trying to throw a 24-hour party all the time. I, I don't know. <laughs> Can that be done in high-rises? It's, um, we're, we're sort of heading toward wrap-up here, but here we are in San Francisco, which is having, as you know, kind of a, a uh, corporate company tech boom in the downtown of Market Street, south of Market, and there's all these high-rises. And you've made the point that if collisionability is the major point, that's sort of what happens on the streets, and you're focusing on, on kind of low-rise situation there in that part of Vegas. Can you imagine a way to make high-rises, either design them so that they're more collisionable, or uh, take the ones that exist and, and do the kind of things you're talking about to make them more uh, community-oriented? Yeah, I mean, hopefully, uh I mean, one, one of the things, we're not going to do this anytime soon, but uh, one of the fantasy ideas uh, I've had for a while is, uh, like, you know, elevators are great collision points, except everyone feels weird and awkward in there and no one talks. But imagine if you built, if elevators were, you know, say the size of this stage, and you put a bar in it, and then... <laughs> and it goes really slowly, yeah. right? No, well, no, but then if... And, and then, you know, culturally, for that building or whatever, make it normal to just hang out at the... Like, if you literally were hanging out at that bar <laughs> 5 to 6 p.m. every day, you'd meet almost everyone in the building. And, uh, and or, uh, or, or it's, you know, it could be coffee or whatever, and... Um, uh, or even, you know, how do you innovate on elevators? Uh, what if you had, uh, you know, the equivalent of a giant Ferris wheel? Uh, and, and so right now, elevators are all, the way you enter an elevator is always at the same place, no matter what floor you're on. But if it's a Ferris wheel, you could, it could be at a different point each, uh -huh. uh, each floor. And then you could even... Uh, you know, have one that's uh, like a quiet coffee bar and another one that's, uh, I don't know, plays 80s music all the time and whatever. And, and then if you, if you get people to think of that and it could rotate slowly, but put it on a schedule and think of it as uh, basically the equivalent of a subway mm -hmm. uh, with schedules, then you just know that at 7.10 every day you're going to go, uh, that's your right, and, and people in New York or wherever adapt to subway schedules, and so uh, yeah, that I know these are just. I think you've also just ideas. reinvented the subway, which would you know, be a horizontal <laughs> version of what you're talking about, uh, which sounds very attractive indeed. Um, clearly, you're setting in motion a, a permission to be inventive in this kind of way about cities and companies. And it's a great thing to do. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.